Easter is a revolutionary event, the inbreaking of God's supernatural power and grace seen in the resurrection of Jesus and the transformed lives of his followers. In today's passage from 1 Corinthians 15, we find one of the most central texts of the New Testament emphasizing how radical this happening is. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, which he had helped plant. You see Acts 18 for more on that. But it seems this church was about ready to fly apart, like the rubber splitting off a wheel on a transport hurtling down the turn. As you browse through the book of 1 Corinthians, you can see many fronts on which there were divisions. Some followed Paul, some Peter, while some claimed an even purer kind of teaching. A man was living in Corinth in immorality with his father's wife, and some were even proud their faith supposedly granted them such liberty. There were disputes about eating meat offered to idols. When they met for the Lord's Supper, some went ahead without waiting for the others. There were hyper-charismatics who emphasized the gift of tongues, while others didn't seem to have much opportunity to say the bit they had that would edify the church. In short, they were a church divided. They weren't being considerate of each other. They've forgotten the forbearance that love cultivates. Left to themselves, they would eventually fly apart, having forgotten the central truths that should have bound them together. They needed reminding of the basics. My wife, Patty, has a hair salon and spa, which has a big sign out by the road with movable letters. Sometimes the wind picks up and rearranges the letters or even blows them off completely. Last week, a big wind blew some of the Easter eggs off the magnolia tree and at the same time blew a letter T clear across our driveway. A small church was affiliated with an exclusive splinter congregation. The members had cut out some gold letters and fastened them on the wall in front of the church. The letters said, Jesus only. However, one day a gust of wind blew away the first three letters. The sign then read more accurately, us only. Even churches can develop amnesia, forgetting who they are supposed to be. I'm going to interrupt at this point. Uh, Mark, do you have any tips thing from sliding down? No. Uh, okay, thank you. If that would help. While he's doing that, I express our sincere appreciation to the folks downstairs in the gym. We were having some technical difficulties with the, the streaming down there. It would be buffering and buffering and uh, didn't get started at the start. So uh, a big thank you to them for their patience. So they are showing forbearance for one another. Let's try that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you about and act up sexually. That wouldn't be so great. They are forgetting their oneness in Christ that should have prompted them to wait for each other when they sat down for the Lord's Supper. They failed to remember it was one Holy Spirit that inspired them with various verses or songs or 
admonitions when it came time to worship together, turning worship into a sort of competition of who could hold the floor the longest. Easter is an annual celebration that should prompt us to ask, have we forgotten what's most central about following Jesus? What's most basic in Christian faith? Is it about dutifully gathering together once a week in a common building? COVID has disrupted that repeatedly. It's, it's just so comfortable to merely tune in online in our pajamas. And for the generations younger than the boomers, going to that certain spot is less important than relationships and involvement in a cause. What form is best for church to take in the future? Will it be a more accessible, diffused model, custom-tailored to each community, less barricaded by denominational walls? Being reminded what's at our core mission, our function, should help nudge us toward the, the best-suited form that gatherings should take. Next section, get grounded, hopefully in a positive way, not like the ever given. This past week, the world held its breath as a 1,300-foot container ship, the Ever Given, went off course in the Suez Canal and became wedged in the embankments of both bow and stern. Some 400 ships were backed up, costing each day an estimated $10 billion, or about $400 million an hour. A small flotilla of tugboats pushed and pulled, and finally, with the help of high tide last Monday, wiggled the 20,000 container-carrying vessel free again. Dredgers removed about 30,000 cubic meters of sand, or enough to fill about a dozen Olympic-sized swimming pools. It had been well and truly grounded. What about you? Are you grounded in your beliefs, your most heartfelt convictions in a good way? Or are you drifting along like the ever given about to be blown off course? When hard times like health issues or job loss come up, what truly grounds you, holds you fast? What keeps you from giving God the finger and walking away from Christian faith? Mark, if you want to. <sighs> the apostles' aim in writing is to help the church get grounded. There are so many gusts of wind blowing from all directions in today's culture. It's easy to get swept along with the latest fad or theory or trend. And parents, these gale force winds are blowing straight down the hallway into your children's bedrooms through their screens without you even being aware, unless you're talking with them and keeping those communication channels open. Back when I was growing up, we had black and white TV and just three channels, two of which were the same. No computers, no smartphones. The closest thing to social media was the telephone party line. Times have changed. How are you grounding your offspring with truth that will stand society's testing? Will they hold firmly to the word they've heard preached? Not just because mom and dad believe it, but because they've seen how effective it is in your life and have reasoned it through for themselves. Is Christianity something airy-fairy, reserved for an hour on Sundays? Or do they see you applying its values and principles and making decisions for everyday life? Not a blip, but broadcast for centuries. 
In verses 3 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reiterates for his readers what are the core truths upon which Christian faith rests. He says, what I received I passed on to you. This is sort of technical jargon for passing along a tradition that's been handed down. Scholars suggest that uh, from the words Paul uses, it's something he's had intentionally relayed to him. It's not his usual vocabulary. The that's here act as sort of like bullet points on a list. So what's at the heart of our faith? A note is not a bundle of emotions or an experience like you might feel by going away to a mountaintop. It's historical events, real happenings that took place at a certain spot and date, things that could be verified by onlookers. Verses 3 to 5. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, conciliation with God, and blessed peace and eternal life, a forever relationship with the most holy and loving one. Christ died. Not pointlessly, not as an anticlimax or frustrated conclusion to a promising ministry, but died for our sins. We needed an absolutely pure and holy Savior, the Son of God, to die in our place if our sins against an infinite creator were ever to be compensated for. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There was purpose in his dying, a major accomplishment. It wasn't futile. He did what he came to do. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. As you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find many prophecies linking Jesus' ministry to the Old Testament, taking care to show how he fulfilled many prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures. This was very deliberate on his part. Before he died, he pointed his, his disciples to what Isaiah predicted. Luke 22:37 said, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now that reference, if you look back where that comes from, is to Isaiah 53, which contains gripping parallels to what must have gone on at Jesus' crucifixion. Then after his resurrection, Jesus again connects the dots for his followers, saying to the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 to 27, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture, all peoples on earth. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and appearances after his rising are the linchpin of God's plan for humanity. It's the enthronement of God's king in God's kingdom. The Christ event is central to God's redemptive plan, drawing a sin-struck rebellion torn forlorn humanity back to himself. Next section, a happening, not a hallucination. Now, Christianity is different from many world religions in that it's based not on mere teaching or philosophy, but on historical, verifiable events. It stands or falls depending whether the key events of Easter really happened. That's why it was so galling for the Jewish leaders not to be able to produce Jesus' body, even though 
Pilate, the governor, had gone to such extreme measures to make it secure. Paul alludes to this historical nature, the essence of Christianity, when he concedes later in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men, more than all people. This past week saw the trial of the policeman involved in George Floyd's death get underway. Now, so what was involved? How did they go about it? They heard eyewitness testimony, what those saw and experienced during the arrest. They heard from the bystander that filmed that key video, a 17-year-old teenager. The jury watched the footage from the security camera inside the store. The film from the police body cam was shown. The object is to help the jurors get an appreciation of what really happened, as close as we can get to them seeing it with their own eyes. Now in verses 5 to 8, lawyer Paul introduces the eyewitness evidence which corroborated the factuality of what the Old Testament prophets had foreseen from afar. The word appeared occurs four times, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 8. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 501. And don't overlook Paul's little aside in verse 6, most of whom are still living. In other words, if you don't believe me, go check it out with them directly. Get it straight from the horse's mouth. It's estimated Paul's writing about A.D. 54 or 55, which would make it maybe 25 years after Jesus' resurrection. How's your memory of notable events? Do you remember where you were when, say, 9-11 happened? Uh, that was nearly 20 years ago in 2001. Uh, now, I won't be talking to some of you on this one. What about when JFK was shot? That's further back in 1963, 58 years ago. I remember coming home from school and finding my mother crying at the kitchen table. So if Paul is writing just 25 years after the event, people's memories of the appearances would still be prominent. The historical nature of Jesus' life and crucifixion are well attested and not seriously questioned by scholars. There's too much manuscript evidence from too many places. The records are well attested. You have the evidence from hostile sources, the priests going to Pilate asking to make the grave secure, when even the disciples themselves seem to have forgotten Jesus' predictions about rising again. The texts don't gloss over the weaknesses and imperfections of the early believers who were real people. Paul and Barnabas getting into a row over whether to take John. Paul confronting Peter for backing down when the Judaizers came. Peter's denial of Jesus. Lots of things that would have been easy to edit out to make the stars look shinier. But for me, most of all, you have the fact that the apostles went to their death maintaining Jesus really rose from the dead. Even the most carefully crafted conspiracies, Chrome's been transmitted to him. What he received, he's passing on to others, verse 3. But see the impact of this truth. Verses 9 and 10 highlight God's grace, mentioned three times at work in Paul's life. Verses 9 to 11. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Paul's point is that he's sort of a worst case scenario. He calls himself the least of the apostles. He feels he does not deserve to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. There's Timothy 1.13. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Acts 9.1. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Violent? Murderous threats? Saul at that point was an arch enemy of the infant church, zealous to stamp it out. Yet God's mercy reached out to even this most unlikely prospect and turned him right around to the point Paul proved to be a convincing defender of the faith, witnessing to the magnificence of the Savior he once persecuted. Or take James, the brother of the Lord, back in verse 7. Jesus' brothers did not believe in him before he died. But by the time we see the early church gathered to pray in the upper room in Acts 1.14, Jesus' brothers are there along with his mother Mary. What happened? What changed their opinion? Apparently, Jesus showed himself in his supernatural risen form to James, and he became convinced. James became a leading pillar of the Jerusalem church. So it seems God chose Saul, Paul, and James to be test cases of sorts, worst-case scenarios, but God's grace prevailed. So Paul could observe, 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Picture and get our hands dirty to serve others in humility. Last section, transformed terrorist. Uh, the photo is Louis Palau. Sorry, uh, the folks at home are seeing the photo. That's Louis Palau is not the terrorist. He's an evangelist. Louis Palau tells of a woman in Peru whose life was radically transformed by the power of Christ. Rosario was her name. She was a terrorist, a, a brute of a woman who was an expert in several martial arts. In her terrorist activities, Rosario had killed 12 policemen. Knowing When Luis Palau conducted a crusade in Lima, Rosario learned of it, and being incensed at the message of the gospel, made her way to the stadium to kill Luis. Inside the stadium, as she contemplated how to get to him, she began to listen to the message he preached on hell. She fell under conviction for her sins and embraced Christ as her Savior. Ten years later, Lewis met this convert for the first time. She had by then assisted in the planting of five churches, was a vibrant, active witness and worker in the church, and had founded an orphanage that houses over 1,000 children. The grace of God was hard at work in her life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we bless you for the wonder of Easter, that you raised your son Jesus from the dead after allowing him to become our perfect sacrifice, suffering for the sins we had committed. We praise you for working in Paul's life, showing what a turnaround you can bring about even in those who would consider themselves least worthy. 
Father, if anyone here today or listening online doubts your grace and mercy or doubts the truth of the facts about Easter, be pleased to work a miracle in their life and draw them to yourself. What we have each received, help us pass on to others. Help us hold firmly to your word and take our stand when culture's winds would pressure us off course. In Jesus' name, amen.